This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So we talk about on this show a lot, either specifically about or using it as an example of something that you can do uh, when you go and see Blair uh, at Sands & Associates, and that's the consumer proposal. Mm -hmm. Let's break it down, sort of deconstruct it so people know exactly what it is if you're kind of going, what's a consumer proposal? Because it feels like it's a new word, but it's been around for a while. It's just not necessarily been called this. Is that right? Yeah, no, that's that's fair, Elaine. I often joke, you know, my life's work is to let people know about this option. Because I had no idea a consumer proposal even existed. I graduated from business school, worked in a professional services firm for a lot of years. It was only when a family member had debt trouble that I actually learned about this as a consumer proposal. And I find people day to day in my office, they still don't know this is an option. So I'm excited today to really get into the nitty gritty, talk about what a proposal is, give you some examples to start, what can it do, and then what are the actual steps going into some good details. So this idea of a proposal that we toss around, here's the actual nitty gritty detail on it. Okay, so what is it? What is is a consumer proposal. Right. So a consumer proposal, it's a legal debt consolidation. So it's only available through a licensed insolvency trustee. And what happens is you sit down with a trustee, you review your whole situation, and then we figure out what can you really afford to pay back on your debts. In very few cases, is it 100% of the debt or you probably wouldn't be in my office. Most of the times, it's we look at a situation and we say, you know what, if this person were to file for bankruptcy, it's likely they would have to pay back very little to nothing on their debts and nothing would be recovered. We say they can't afford to pay off their debts back in full, so we put together a proposal which is meant to be a win-win. The win to the person is they don't file for bankruptcy. The win to the people that they owe money to is the person's going to offer them back more money than they would have received if that person had filed for bankruptcy. So in many cases, you know, if someone owes uh, a certain amount of debt, we offer a proposal for about a third of the debt, maybe half of the debt, something like that, and it's payable in monthly payments over a period of time. So often the creditor then is going to be a little more more uh, uh, favorable of this as a solution than Mm -hmm. if somebody's going to declare bankruptcy. Yeah, this is really the creditor's option because um, if someone declares bankruptcy, it's their right. The creditor doesn't have to say yes or no, they can't reject it, they've just got to accept and deal that the person's used Canadian law to protect them. When the person makes a consumer proposal, the creditor gets the option. Would you agree, creditor, to reduce your debt um, and allow this person to pay off a reduced amount with no interest? By the way, if you say no to this, you're probably going to end up with nothing because they might file for bankruptcy. 95 to 99% of the, of the time, they vote to accept the consumer proposal. Sure, it makes sense. So a couple examples that might help our listeners here. Yeah. So uh, if there was someone that owed $20,000, and this is a number I see all the time, credit cards, student loans, payday loans, things like that, a typical offer in a consumer proposal might be 30% of the total debt repaid. So that $20,000, the minimum payments on that might be, you know, seven dollars $800 typically. If you were to do a consumer proposal, the payment would be $165 a month. Uh, and if be done in 36 months, so just over three years. What you'd be paying back is 30 cents on the dollar. What would get written off is 70 cents on the dollar, and you would not have to do a bankruptcy filing all the costs would be included. You've essentially made a deal to compromise your debts. That's a consumer proposal. And if I'm listening to this and go, yeah, but I can't afford $165 a month, Mm -hmm. that's 
something that's also taken into consideration by yeah. you. Oh, yeah, I'm not allowed to file a consumer proposal unless I sit down with somebody and we go through their budget and we establish that there is the ability to, to make this reduced payment that's going to actually solve the problem. Right. If it's the case the person's relying on credit every month because they've got a $500 hole in their budget, I'm not helping them if suddenly I turn off the credit tap and say, hey, you got to pay me $165 to solve the problem. They've got to do a bunch of work first to figure out how are they going to live with no access to credit because you've got to be able to be self-sufficient. And then we can decide what we're going to do with, with the consumer proposal. And, you've, and you'll help them figure out the right balance or the right amount that they ha- they'll have to pay. Yeah, you know, debts in a consumer proposal, the maximum is $250,000, which is huge, but I've definitely seen people up to close to that amount. And that's not including your, mo- your mortgage. So the mortgage is okay. separate. You continue to pay on a mortgage, a car loan. Um, but if you had consumer debts up to 250000 that's when a consumer proposal could apply. What's the minimum? Uh, there's no minimum. Okay. So I've seen people as low as four or $5,000 and okay. it's been payday loan debt. So they know it might be 4000 now, but with these interest charges, next year it could be eight after that, 12. So they do a consumer proposal and on a small amount of debt, you generally have to pay back probably about half or more than that. But still you stop the interest and you, you get yourself basically back on track to get out of debt as opposed to being in a cycle. Of debt. Okay, now there's a couple of more rules that you've got here. It can't, it does, does, how long does it go on for the consumer proposal? Yes, yeah, so the maximum term on a consumer proposal, and I like this, the maximum term is 60 months or five years. Okay. So we're not talking the never-never plan. We're not talking 10, 20 years of debt payments, which if you look at your minimum payments, that's usually the plan that you're on. Maximum term is five years for a proposal. And what I really like too is that's the absolute max because you can pay it off quicker. So if you do a proposal, let's say it's the 165 over 36 months, say things are going great and you decide you can double up on payments, you'll be finished that proposal in a year and a half. Okay. No interest, no additional charges anyway, but as soon as you pay off the reduced balance, you're finished a proposal and you get up to five years to do so. So it's a little more flexible. Yeah. Really flexible. Mm-hmm. So how do, how do I get started? So the way a consumer proposal works, so at Sands & Associates, we typically employ a three-meeting approach. And this is the same for a bankruptcy and a proposal because when someone walks in the door, we don't really know what we're, what we're facing, right? And that's the joy of my job is I'm going to meet with a bunch of really nice people every day who are going to tell me um, all their secrets, so to speak, and we're going to come to a good answer. So sometimes the answer is a proposal. Sometimes the answer is a bankruptcy. Sometimes the answer is just some informal counseling, making them aware of different tools and resources that are available. But everything starts with a free confidential consultation. So we mention a lot on this show, you know, you call the 1-800 number, um, you'll meet with one of our representatives at one of our 16 offices, very qualified people. And we'll sit down by saying, you know, what, what brings you in today? You know, what, what's been going on? What's the situation? And usually it's, well, I've got a ton of debt and the phone's ringing off the hook and I'm worried about all these things happening. And we'll just start a very gentle, um, compassionate dialogue about, well, here's the options, here's what you're facing, and then we'll we'll start a plan from there. And it's got to be different for every person that comes in your door, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, some of the things will be similar, but for the moment, like my situation could be completely different than the other, but even the amount is the same. Yeah, yeah. the the numbers change marginally, but the people's situations change completely from person to person, you know, um, anywhere from, you know, long-term medical issues, for example, to someone who a year ago was on the top of the world at a very successful business and now suddenly things have changed the coins flipped and they've got some big issues so um, you know I see folks of all walks of life and various different scenarios um, but almost always uh, to a fault people learn things when they come in for that first initial consultation no matter how financially sophisticated they are most people have no idea about insolvency about the options that are available to them right. so the first meeting we book it for an hour it's typically about you know 40 minutes to, to an hour in length answer all the questions and then if you sit down with anyone at my 
offices, you'll leave knowing exactly what your options are. If you chose to file a bankruptcy, here's what that's going to look like. If you choose to do a consumer proposal, um, here's how we think that structure is going to unfold. So okay. the first meeting is huge. And I never have someone say they regret coming to that meeting. I have people say they regret waiting so long. People right. really, um, you know, they sit on the fence. They're worried about being judged. They're worried they can fix the situation themselves. And even if you can fix it yourself, you're still going to be armed with better knowledge by coming in for that first meeting. Fair enough. So what happens in the second meeting with you? Let's say I've decided to go ahead with a mm-hmm. consumer proposal. What happens then? Yeah. So at the first meeting, typically at the end of it, I pass over an application form, my business card, all the basically numbers that we've written up. And I say, okay, backbone of our second meeting is that you bring back an application form and you just give me some proof of what you've told me today. So we talked about all the debts that you've had. Okay, bring me in the most recent uh, statements for those. We talked that you've got a car and there's a loan against it. Okay, bring me the vehicle registration and the loan statement. We talked that you work this job, bring me in the pay stub and your taxes for the last year. So it's all pretty basic stuff. You know, I need to know your debts. I need to know your assets and your monthly income. So you bring me in some documentation to support all of that. And then during the rest of the second meeting, we just answer your questions. So if it's a consumer proposal, we talk about, well, part of the proposal is going to be the creditor acceptance period. So people are going to have to vote to accept and we go through that. And then we also talk about counseling because a really important part of both bankruptcies and consumer proposals is that you come for two financial counseling sessions. So the second meeting, again, we book about an hour, go through all of the information. Um, and by the way, and you haven't asked this, but no one's paid anything at this point. So the initial consultation is always free. All the subsequent meetings are free. The only time someone pays a fee is when we actually start to move forward and solve the problem. And you figured out what the monthly payment's exactly. going to be. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then the third meeting is... The happy signing meeting. So that's the meeting when I find people walk out and I've had it many, many times. People say, you know what? I feel just so much lighter. I feel like I'm walking on air because what they've done during the third meeting is we sit down, we go through all the legal documents, we review everything in detail, you swear some oaths, this is an accurate and true representation of everything. Um, And then you walk out of the office knowing that you're fully protected, your creditors can't do anything to you, knowing that your proposal has just been filed and now for the next 45 days, all your creditors can do is decide, do they want to accept the proposal? that's going to give them a good repayment or do they want to reject that and then you would have an option of either filing a bankruptcy or going back to where you were before. 95% of the time they accept the proposal, 99% of the time if we negotiate we reach a deal. So not quite 100% but very, very close. But you're looking after all that stuff at that point, All right? that's behind the scenes, yep. So yeah. when that person walks out of the office after the third meeting, uh, we kind of jokingly say, but no news is good news. So we'll only call you if there's a negative vote, if there's a counter offer, anything like that. Otherwise, we're just waiting for 45 days to be over, and that's when the proposal is approved. Excellent. So what happens after they've let's go ahead, fairy, uh, you know, that they've gone ahead and approved it? Mm-hmm. What the creditors have accepted the proposal? Then what? Well, then life becomes pretty simple mm-hmm. because when you came in to see us, probably you were doling out, you know, payments, you know, and a small proposal, you know, maybe three creditors and other larger proposals, maybe 15, 20 different people you're trying to keep happy every month. In the proposal, you make a single payment, you make it to the trustee each month. We do auto withdrawal from bank accounts, so it's just seamless. We try to synchronize with your pay dates. So one payment per month comes out, and generally it's a payment that's way less than what you were paying before. Um, other than that, you come for the two financial counseling sessions that we talked about. You sit down with us, we talk about credit rebuilding, household budgeting, life after the proposal is complete, um, and then you just continue on making the payments. So usually as part of terms of the proposal, you got to keep up to date in your tax filings, um, but that's about it. There's very little compliance otherwise. It's just make the payments, come for the counseling, and then we deal with all the rest. 
Are there any debts that can't be included in that consumer proposal? That's a good question, Elaine. There are a few. There's a, a lot of small debts, and you know they're typically the ones that you might think are you know maybe shouldn't be included in a proposal. So things like court-imposed fines. So if you go to court and the judge says, you know what, you must pay this fine, um, you can't suddenly do a proposal and say, hey, how about twenty cents on the dollar back? <laughs> no, the court's no. made that order, so um, unfortunately, it's got to be dealt with. Okay. Um, things that you know just logically you shouldn't be able to walk away from things like money owing. For things stolen or property obtained through false pretenses oh, sure. or fraudulent misrepresentation, All that stuff. so I think people sometimes have an idea that you know it's the scoff laws that you know um, try to renegotiate their debt. Well, the scoff laws run away from their debt. The people that do consumer proposals um, typically they're dealing with debt that's honestly incurred and they fa- they face it head on. Fair enough. Uh, child and spousal support payments. So if you've got an obligation for maintenance to your family, you'd never want to compromise that anyway. And in a proposal, you can't compromise it. So if there's an FMEP award, that's got to get paid. But you'll work with me if. Mm-hmm. if if that's the case, if oh, I've got course. to pay that amount of money, yeah. you're gonna that's gonna be part of the discussion about what I can afford to pay each month. Oh, of course. Sometimes I've got individuals, you know, the gross income might be six thousand dollars a month, but thirty five hundred is going for child and spousal support. Well now they're an individual close to the poverty line and the proposal that I do has got to be something that can that they can afford on their net amount that's left after after um, their their support payments. Right. So don't let that stop you. Mm-hmm. If any of this sounds like you that 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 fits you or someone you know, go see Blair and his staff. Sands and Associates, they've got 16 offices in British Columbia. Uh, go to their website, check it out. It's terrific. And give them a call, 1-800-661-3030 for that consultation and to find an office near you. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So before we get into things, Blair, can you talk a little bit about or explain what you do at Sands & Associates as a licensed insolvency trustee? I know it's quite a title, and it actually means something, though. So yeah. let's talk about that. Yeah, so a licensed insolvency trustee um, is the only person licensed and endorsed by the federal government to help you deal with your debts. So if you've got a situation where you owe too much money, more than you're able to realistically pay off, whether it's the government, whether it's a bank, whether it's even a personal creditor, a licensed insolvency trustee is the person that can help you either reduce the debt through a consumer proposal um, or help you restructure your entire you know financial health uh, through a personal bankruptcy. Okay, so there's two things that we're always talking about or looking at. Mm-hmm. Um, let's look at a case where a consumer proposal made sense as a debt management option for someone. Sure. And, you know, consumer proposals are about two-thirds of the, the volume of work we do these days. So people coming through the door, you know, five years ago, no one had heard of a consumer proposal. Um, now people coming through the door, people are asking for, you know, I need to do a proposal. I know this is a good solution for me. So it's about two-thirds of the folks that we meet with. So the situation that I came across recently, it was a 30-year-old gentleman. Um, he had about 34000 dollars of consumer debts. Most of it was your standard, you know, MasterCard, Visa, lines of credit, things like that, but also about $5,000 in government student loans. And he had just recently graduated just a couple of years ago. Okay. So that's a lot of money, third, over $34,000 yeah. in debt. Yeah, and you'd, a, you'd ask out. why, right? Sure. Yeah, and you know, when I sat down with him, we figured out, well, when he was going to school, he couldn't work. You know, he was trying to work part-time, but he also had some personal health issues. So, okay. you know, it was all he could do just to show up to class, but then a lot of his therapies, his drugs and things like that, they weren't covered. So, you know, mm. something had to give, and what, what happened was he had this credit limit that could be used, and he essentially used it to survive. Which 
kind of makes sense that you would do that, right? I mean, I'm sure he's not alone in, in, in dealing with a debt situation by doing that. Yeah, I don't find anybody, you know, goes lightly when they, when they know, hey, well, I'm spending money on my credit just to survive. They don't do that as their first option. That's right. kind of the last resort. And, you know, this gentleman as well, um, he had a vehicle that he had financed, you know, it was a Kia Optima, it was a couple of years old. Uh, one of the first things that he started to do was, was he stopped paying on the vehicle. He's like, you know, I can't afford the car payment and tuition and living, so something's got to go here. So by the time he met me, you know, he had already had his vehicle seized from him oh, even, even a couple dear. of years back there. Oh, that's such a drag. And it's not like it was a big, fancy, expensive no. SUV. It was a Kia, for yeah, goodness sake. It, it, was, it wasn't over, you know, overpriced for what he needed. No. Right. Right. Okay, so um, what were you able to do for him? Yeah, so he came in and then sat down with me, and we figured out, okay, he's now graduated. He's now able to earn income, um, but he's got nowhere near the income that he's going to need to service this debt. So we looked at what are the options, and we looked at if he filed for bankruptcy, what would happen? And, you know, he wasn't too interested in bankruptcy. He was just starting off his career. Uh, he realized, you know, if I go in, in, into bankruptcy, I might get get rid of the debt quicker than through a proposal, but that's not really what I want to do. I want to, you know, make a good faith effort to pay back what I can afford. And it is a scary word. It's mm-hmm. still a scary word for people. Oh, yeah, absolutely. People hesitate to call us because they think all we can do is bankruptcy. And again, that's about a third. Two-thirds of it is helping you avoid bankruptcy. Right. So what we were able to do is we filed a consumer proposal. When he walked in the door to see us, he was owing $34,000 plus interest, you know, getting collection calls, interest rates anywhere from, you know, 10 to 12% on the line of credit to over 25% on some of the credit cards. Yeah. We filed a consumer proposal. We took the $34,000 of debt to $12,000, 12600 That's incredible because that's less than half yeah. of the 34000 he owed. Yeah. You know what, what's incredible, Elaine? He said that the payment in the consumer proposal, so it was 210 per month is what he's got to pay over 60 months. $210. Yep. Yeah. That was over $1,000 per month less than what his minimum payments were. Wow. And so how long did he take to pay it? Well, he's in the proposal now. So, so he's in it Yeah, right so he's, he's a couple of years in, I think, as, as of now. Um, he's, you know, working through things. He's making his payments, and he's doing fine now. And he's got a job making money mm-hmm. based on the education that he went into uh, debt for, Yeah, I'm going to assume. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He's working in the field, and that's an important point, too, because he had just graduated from university. So by law, even though he's done a consumer proposal on his debt, he's still going to have to deal with the part of the student loan that's not paid back because it hasn't been seven years since he graduated school. So there is a waiting period, but it doesn't mean that it was the wrong idea for him to do a proposal. It dealt with all of his other debt. It stopped all of the interest and it gave him the peace of mind, the, you know, the, 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 space that he needed to restructure himself. And it still brought his, his monthly payment down to $210, which sounds very, very manageable. Exactly. He, again, over $1,000 a month in minimum payments, and he would have paid that for 30, 40 years plus. He would have paid the debt back multiple times over and probably never been able to save money. Right. Okay. So what about an example of someone who came to see you, um, but you didn't uh, let them file a consumer proposal or personal bankruptcy. Like how do yeah. how do you because that's kind of your business. Right. How do you how did you manage that? And that's something that I think I, I'm most proud of too. Is you know at Sands and Associates we look at the the client and we figure out you know if we've got the solution that's great. But if there's a solution that's better for the person that doesn't involve us, if all we have to do is give you some information and then with that you're empowered to do what you need to do. You know that's success for us as well. So not everybody that walks in the door, far from it, um, ends up filing a consumer proposal or a personal bankruptcy. 
Okay. So with this situation, it was uh, someone they were in their mid-30s, and unfortunately, she had had a battle with cancer over the past few years. Now, oh. yeah, and it, it happens, right? You know, right. she successfully came through the other side, but a lot of treatments, a lot of therapies, a lot of periods of time, again, with, with no income. Um, she had about $8,000 of credit card debt and a really small amount owing to the government, about $300. So, you know, nothing to get too excited about. Um, 8000 to the government, you'd be more excited about, sure. but it was mainly the credit card debt that she was concerned about. Yeah. Now, what she had for assets was interesting, too, because she had worked, you know, during her 20s pretty steadily. So there was a retirement account there, a locked-in retirement account worth about $41,000. And if she could have touched that, she would have cashed it in to pay the debts. But the whole point of it is it's locked in. You can't touch it until you're 65. So she had this money there, but she had no savings. Um, She had leased a vehicle, um, and she just really didn't know what to do um, because as of now, she didn't have any income. So she was supported by her family while she was awaiting a disability pension application. Okay. So what was the solution? Well, there were a couple things that she could have done. So with no income, a proposal doesn't make any sense because you'd just be giving her another payment every month that's not going to be possible to be paid. Fair enough. So, you know, two things she could do. One would be to file for personal bankruptcy, which would definitely deal with the issue. But the other one is actually to do nothing. See, that sounds crazy to yeah. me. Not do, and, and I don't know if I'd be able to not do something, right? Yeah. So... What did, you, what did she do? She had to have done something. Well, exactly. And, and I'll explain it to you because, you know, doing nothing sounds a little bit cute. But but essentially, that that's what I'm telling her is, you know, oftentimes the worst thing you can do is just to continue making minimum payments month after month when you know you're never going to pay off the debt. Okay. What happens um, when, you, when you stop paying on your creditors is they can do a couple of things to you, but it's generally not as bad as you might anticipate. Um, so they can call you. They can call, you know, morning, noon, and night, six days, six, seven days a week. Um, but you can stop that call just by sending them a legal letter. So I gave this individual a copy of a legal letter from Consumer Protection BC that says, I don't consent to phone calls. She sends the letter and all the calls stop. So, you know, that's the number one harassing thing. You can stop it with a letter. Right. And, and, it's, and it's, uh, uh, the jurist, it's under the jurisdiction of the provincial government. That's right. It's not you making no. up that rule, but they actually it's made up that It's consumer protection legislation, but yeah. who is ever going to tell you about it? Not the person that's trying to collect from you. Of course. They're going to say, you have to take my call. Well, no, you don't. You can send them a letter saying, I only deal with these things by mail, so please take all this venom, put it down on paper, and I'll be happy to look at it. Right. So she was able to stop that. Yeah. And then what, she, what I encouraged her to do as well, was to open a new bank account somewhere where she doesn't owe anybody money. And what that means is any money that she does have, any savings or support from family, that's going to be protected. The only way anybody can ever touch your money in your bank is if you already owe that bank money. If you've got a credit card somewhere, you should be banking somewhere else or if they take you to court to sue you. And what we determined here is the odds of this lady getting sued for an $8,000 credit card debt when she's on disability pension, it's not going to happen. Okay, so the the key, though, is is setting up an account in another bank that you're not already connected to. Yeah, protect the assets that you have, send the letter to stop the calls, and quite simply, that's all some people need to do. Very cool. So if any of this resonates with you, if this sounds like your situation, somebody that you know their situation, or your own, and you think, okay, maybe I'll, that's all I need to do is sit down and talk with somebody about this, you're listening to the right thing. The show is Dollars and Cents. Blair Manton from Sands and Associates. You can get that fresh start. It's very easy. The number 1-800-661-3030 for a free consultation and to find an office near you.
Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. In studio with us is Ashley Garley, also from Sands & Associates. Um, Ashley's an estate manager, wide range of insolvency administration experience. Uh, When meeting with clients for the first time at Sands, uh, she says her goal is to ensure that each person comes away feeling confident, empowered, and knowing much more about how to deal with their financial difficulties than when they first arrived. And Ashley, I can't tell you how much that sounds like everything that Blair and I always talk about mm-hmm. uh, on how to greet people and sort of move them through this sometimes pretty difficult process. So I'm so glad that you could be here today. Yeah, me too. Great. So we're this uh, this segment is uh, Client Myths and Misconceptions. Yeah, so I was chatting with Ashley about coming on the show, and there were two purposes. You know, one is I want our listeners to really understand a little bit more about who would they actually meet with if they were to come into Sands and Associates. And Ashley works primarily out of the Vancouver office, but she also travels and serves our Kelowna office occasionally and, and other spots as well. Um, so that's part of it. But also, I wanted Ashley to really tell us, you know, when people come in the door, they often have a lot of myths and misconceptions, and sometimes they're a bit different than what I might have thought were the main myths. Sure. So I wanted Ashley to just say to the clients you've met with, say, over the last year or two years or so, what are the main myths and misconceptions they bring in the door? And then let's give, you know, the factual basis as well. And we'll have a good chat today. Sounds good. Excellent. So what's, uh, and, and these aren't really in the order of importance or the, or how many times they show up. They're just numbered in this way. Or is this the number one that you're going to lose everything when you file for bankruptcy? This is probably one of the number one myths most people think they're going to lose everything. I so, would think so, too, now that I said yeah. it out loud. It would so, be my concern so, as well. So myth number one, Ashley, you lose all your assets when you file for bankruptcy. Yeah, many people have this uh, conception that this is going to happen when you file bankruptcy. And before I got into this field, I had a similar idea that if you file bankruptcy, you will lose all of your assets. Um, And that is not the case. So within Canada, there is a set of exemption allowances. And the idea behind these exemption allowances is that everybody is entitled to a certain base level of assets in all circumstances, regardless of their financial hardship and or a bankruptcy. So to me, that almost feels like everyone's allowed to have some dignity, right? You That's know, there's right. a certain base level of things that no matter what, not everything can be taken from you. And this was brand new information for me, as it is, I know, for everyone, uh, unless you're familiar with how the process works. But I always thought if you were going into bankruptcy, personal bankruptcy, everything went. Didn't matter what you had. Yeah, and many people think this. And, you know, briefly, some assets that are exempt and you are allowed to keep are, for instance, your household furniture. So, no, you're not going to lose everything in your home. You know, clothing and medical aids up to an unlimited amount. So many people have this idea, you know, I'm going to lose all the clothing off my back. Right. That's not the case either. Other assets that you can keep that many people also are not aware of are, you know, your RSPs are protected mm-hmm. unless you've made contributions within the last 12 months. As well as many people think, if I have a home, I'm going to automatically lose that when I file bankruptcy. And uh, within the greater Vancouver area and Victoria area, you are automatically allowed to actually keep up to a certain amount of equity in your home, uh, up to the value of 12000 in our greater Vancouver area and up to $9,000 anywhere else in the province. Okay, so could you explain what exactly that means? Uh, what exactly that means, I'm allowed to keep that equity? What does that mean? So, you know, in a home, and if you're 
property, you would have an amount of equity within you have in it. So you have your current market value less, you know, what your mortgage, et cetera, would be on it, plus selling costs, et cetera. We take a look at what is left over after that. Do you have equity within your home? Okay. So many people think if I have equity within my home, I automatically have to give up my whole home and the equity will go into the bankruptcy estate. Got it. So this is letting you know that, no, you are allowed to have up to $12,000 here in the greater Vancouver area. anywhere else in the province. And even if you exceed, you know, these amounts, there are options to deal with that. It's not going to be you automatically lose your home. Okay, good. Uh, What about if you've got a mortgage or a car loan? So this is something that also comes up for people. They feel I'm going to automatically lose that asset as well. And no, as long as you continue to maintain the payments on these uh, loans or leases, you get to uh, maintain that asset. So that could be your home, your vehicle, etc. So you just need to continue maintaining the payments on that and keeping that in good standing. And I would maintain those payments if I was doing a consumer proposal, for example, yeah, right? Yeah, in both cases. So the way that I explain to folks is, you know, basically a secured debt, like a mortgage or a car loan, means that if you don't pay it, they're able to come and take the security back from you, the car or the mortgage, okay, right. or the car or the house. Um, nothing that we do impacts that at all. So if you want to keep the car, you just keep making the payments. If you want to keep living where you are, you keep paying the mortgage. You going into bankruptcy or doing a consumer proposal gives you the option. If you wanted to walk away from those obligations, okay, you could, but not the obligation to do so. Most people are actually in much better shape. They can afford their mortgage better. They can afford their car loan better if we've helped them with a consumer proposal or a bankruptcy to deal with all the other debt. Got it. Okay. So what's number two? Uh, Bankruptcy can't eliminate income tax debt. And you know, I even have accountants call me and they're saying, you know, I've got this guy, he's got a bunch of, you know, credit card debt. I know you can help with that, but the income taxes, I know you can't help. I'm like, okay, are you asking me or telling me? Because I can absolutely (laughs) help with this. So this is a big misconception here. So Ashley... Bankruptcy yeah, cannot it. eliminate it. Yeah, yeah, explain that. So just as Blair said, not just amongst the people that we meet in our office, but you know, amongst other professionals out there. Who should know, right? who you think you should know. But you know, we do have this idea that it's our tax debt, so how could we ever include this in one of these options? But in fact, you know, a bankruptcy or a consumer proposal is your only available option to eliminate or reduce these government debts, such as CRA tax debt, uh, student loans, if it's been more than seven years since you were a student, MSP, and even ICBC debts can be dealt with through a licensed insolvency trustee. And the only issue is that student loan mm-hmm. piece, right? And if as long as you haven't paid on it for what's the period of time? Uh, close. So as long as you haven't been a student for haven't? the last seven years. Okay. So paying on it doesn't really impact too much, but it's when you were last a student, the government wants you to try for, you know, at least a few years to try to earn income, pay it back. And if you go bankrupt or do a consumer proposal and it has not been seven years since you were last a student, that debt would survive. That's okay. the only one that, that has that special status. Fair enough. Good. I'm glad you explained that. Mm-hmm. Uh, what about the myth that my credit's ruined, uh, my credit is ruined if I'm going to file bankruptcy or a consumer proposal. That's right. Many people feel if I file a bankruptcy or even a consumer proposal that there will be no option for them to rebuild their credit or even have credit again. Ever again, yeah. And that's, again, not the case in a bankruptcy. Uh, it's going to remain on your credit history for six years following your discharge. But it's important to note that even though that's reporting on there for six years, within about two to three years from your bankruptcy discharge, you can positively rebuild on there and have a good credit history standing within that time. So even though it's reporting on there for six years, you can still positively be reflecting on that after your bankruptcy discharge. And then after that six years, it's completely eliminated from there. And, the, and then all you'll see is my, is my good credit history. Yeah. 
Exactly. The way I sometimes discuss with clients is, you know, there's 120,000 people every year in Canada, give or take a few, uh, who file bankruptcy or a consumer proposal. If all of those people were just eliminated from the credit system, that's a lot of consumers for the banks to write off every year. They're not writing off 120,000 consumers. People will want to loan you money again, because otherwise, looking at it cynically, nobody makes any money if they don't loan you money in the future. So there will be a period of time where you have to rebuild, but it's closer to the two to three years Ashley was mentioning. Got it. What about tools and resources to build, uh, to rebuild my credit rating or build it? So yeah, that's another great thing that's offered actually through the bankruptcy and consumer proposal process is we do offer uh, two counseling sessions, which do touch base on all these tools and resources that would help you rebuild your credit. A great place to start is by securing yourself with a secured credit card. So you go out there, it's guaranteed approval, you're going to have that credit card and positively be using that, meaning you're paying that bill off every month in full. And that's going to very positively reflect on your credit bureau and show that you're now responsibly using the credit. And it's a small, usually the credit card is a small amount that's put on it, is that right? Or a... That's right. You put a small deposit down and they're going to give you a limit. It varies on which um, institution you apply to, but it does give you the available credit, which you can then go out and responsibly use. Absolutely. As, and the, responsi- the responsible part is that I need to pay it off. I need to pay it off on a timely manner That's right. when or, I'm supposed to. Or they'll take your deposit and then you won't get the positive stories on your credit and then you it's not achieved what it's supposed to achieve. Right. You don't get the credit card <laughs> yeah. or anything. That's a, a mess at that point. Um the other, I, I like this myth because this is sort of the one that I fell into uh, before I started uh, doing this show, is that bankruptcy is my only option to deal with debt. Yeah, many people think that it is their only other option out there to get debt relief. But uh, although the consumer proposal is not a new debt relief tool, you know, many people are surprised that it can relieve them from their debt. Um, what the consumer proposal does is it combines all the debts into one settlement and gives the person a, you know, advantage of being able to just keep track of one payment while mm-hmm. settling all the debts instead of now having multiple creditors to deal with, multiple payments. So it makes it very manageable and avoids them going bankrupt. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And it's always, what's the percentage, Blair, that, that you're always able to um, negotiate in terms of paying down in, in a, when you've got a consumer proposal? Yeah, two really important percentages. So, you know, first off is what's what percentage does the person have to offer back? And, you know, mm-hmm. usually it's about 30 to 50% of the debt outstanding. So whatever the total amount is, forget about future interest that goes to zero. And then you repay somewhere in the range, 30 to 50, 20 to 40%, something like that. So that's a good percentage for people to know. It's good ballpark. The other percentage that I think is so important for people to know is how often are these proposals accepted? Because some people say, well, why would my creditors ever agree to give me zero interest, give me five years to pay off a reduced amount? And the answer is 95 to 99% of the time these proposals get accepted because the alternative is often the creditors will get nothing if you choose to file for a bankruptcy. So if you can offer about a third of the debt back, generally about 95 to 99% of the time that proposal could get accepted. And in terms of getting everybody on board, all of your lenders on board, mm-hmm. what's the percentage that you need in order for that to yeah. for a consumer proposal to happen? Oh, great questions, Elaine. The, all we need is 50% <laughs> by dollar value. So if you've got someone yelling and screaming, I'll never accept a proposal unless they've got a majority of your debt, they don't have to. As long as the other guys or gals say yes, it's a binding deal. Yeah, I really like that part mm-hmm. of it as well. Um, the myth number five, was there anything else that you wanted to say about the consumer proposal? No, Blair touched a lot of those. Yeah, I know. We talk about about it all the time, (laughs) Ashley. Sorry. (laughs) Um, That they're lengthy and costly. 
Yeah, so I mean, Blair did touch a lot of these points that a lot of people think they're going to have this giant repayment back, that this is going to last a long time for them. But as Blair mentioned, you know, you only need to usually repay back 20 to 30% of that debt. Okay, a payment plan that we put out in the proposal could be anywhere from 48 to 60 months. But the great thing about the proposal is that you do have the right to pay that out more or full at any time. So if you start to earn more, you know, in the future and you're starting to have a better financial standing, you do now have the ability to also finish this consumer proposal off quicker for yourself. So it's a bit more flexible. And the last one, and we're just running out of time here, I'm not responsible for my spouse's debt. Yeah, many people think I'm married, my spouse has debt, now this is my responsibility if they can't meet it. And unless your partner uh, has co-signed or, you know, you have personally guaranteed yourself to, you know, be responsible for this debt if they cannot make it, your spouse's debt is not your responsibility. Those are their debts. And so even if your spouse were to go bankrupt, that does not mean that that bankruptcy affects you. That's their legal proceeding to deal with their debt. Exactly. That's great. We've been talking with Ashley Garley, who's an estate manager uh, at Sands & Associates. And uh, if you'd like more information, check out their website, sands-trustee.com. Or go ahead, take the action, call 1-800-661-3030 and get that free consultation and to find an office near you. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. Statute of limitations on my debt. Mm-hmm. And it's a it's p- something that people want to know about. That's what so that interesting. Mean, right? Yeah, <laughs> what does it mean to the person who doesn't know? And the fact that people want to know the the limitations on these things. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. Okay, so let's talk. So the, it's a provincial statute on limitation uh, on the limitations of debt. Yeah, let's kind of st- step back a second. So I was mentioning yeah. to you, Elaine, you know, we did a blog post on this a couple of years ago, and it's been our most popular blog post ever in the history of our site. So people still search it all the time. I look at you know, the traffic reports. A sure. lot of people are still reading this article. So I got to think it's something of, re- of relevance to the listeners as well. Any suggestion or thought about why it is? Well, I think it's just people have no idea there is a statute of limitations on debt. So, you know, just starting off at the basics, what is a statute of limitations? I think most people generally understand, but just, you know, putting it out there, this means that if something happens, there's a certain period of time where you've got to take action to hold somebody accountable or you lose the right to ever do so. Correct. Um, so we're not going to talk too much, you know, personal injury or different things like that. I'm just talking no. about debt. Um, but let's say, you know, if you were to borrow money from me, or, um, if you didn't pay me back and we had a certain term that you were supposed to agree to, I can't hold this over your head for the rest of your life. Right. There is a statute of limitations that operate that basically give people some certainty that if they got an obligation, they haven't paid it, there's a certain period of time after which they lose the ability to ever be held accountable for that obligation. And so I want, sorry. Oh, so we're going to talk about that, how that operates today in respect to debts. And just thinking about them being the most popular, uh, uh, one of the most popular blogs on your site, I wonder if it's maybe the first step that people are taking to figure out if they're in trouble or not. I think that could be the case, yeah, especially if someone's got some debt. Oh my God, I didn't know I owed this. This is five years old. Hey, isn't there some protection for me, some statute on that? That could be a piece of it. I can't believe they're still after me. Okay, Mm -hmm. cool. So let's talk about that. So the background on what the statue is about. So you've talked about it, that it's... um, well, you mentioned the other piece of that that where can also come into play is liabilities due to injury and damages. Mm-hmm. Um, and your best advice for that is go talk to a lawyer. Yeah, there's a whole industry, obviously, of personal injury lawyers in BC. They do a great job. They're very well versed in all of this. So, you know, if you've got you know 
physical loss, physical um, um, you know detriment, something happened to you, this is not the segment for you. If you owe money and you're concerned about it, this is the segment we're going to talk about that. And it's interesting that you also mentioned that it's only two years. Yeah. It doesn't seem that that's long enough. It's really not very long. So it, what it is, it's governed under the Limitation Act of BC, and it's a two-year basic period, which it used to be six years. Okay, oh. in six years, it's still that way in a bunch of provinces. And I remember Ontario went to two years before BC did, and I thought, well, does this mean an Ontario, people are just going to stop paying their debts so they'll wait them out for two years. That's not what happened. Again, generally people are very honest. They don't just go and suddenly say, I'm not going to pay you because I know there's a statute of limitations here. Uh, but BC followed the same trend as Ontario and they reduced the period down to two years. So what this means is there's a limitation period of two years from the date the debt was incurred or the date the last payment was made against it or the date of the last time you gave a written acknowledgement that you owed this money. So what it means on a you know nuts and bolts basis sure. is if you've got say a credit card that you haven't been able to pay, you know sometimes you're better off not making the five or ten dollar payment that you might think the creditor is doing a favor for you, saying hey you haven't paid us in about eight months, why don't you make just a ten dollar good faith payment? I want to work with you. I know you're a good person. I'm a good person. What you're doing there is resetting the statute of limitations. So I see clients come in to see me, and sometimes it's been literally twenty two months since they've heard from a creditor and say oh my god I'm getting all these collection calls now, but they're actually nice. They're friendly calls. They just want me to make a partial payment. And then they say, oh, they'll work with me again. And I say, well, that's great. And maybe there is an element of altruism in that. But what they're also doing is getting you to reset that statute of limitations back to the, the date of your last payment. So if you were at, you know, 22 months, if you hadn't made any payments on the debt, you were about to be protected by a statute of limitations after 24 months. If you made a payment in month 23, suddenly you're back to no protection from a limitations point of view. That clock starts ticking again. Okay. Now there are some exceptions to that two-year uh, limited, limited time, right? Mm-hmm. And what are they? Yeah, they're pretty similar to the types of, of exceptions um, you know, that, that generally apply in, in a bankruptcy. Sure. Now, first off, the two years is only in BC. Different provinces are still up to six years in different places. Um, but things like if there was a civil claim that enforced a monetary judgment. So if someone sues you, take you to court and gets damages awarded against you, there is not a two-year limitation period for that type of a debt. Fair enough. Uh, debts owing to government bodies like CRA, student loans, income taxes, GST, that has no statute of limitations. So again, two years with the government, they're not going to know what you're talking about. It's not going to give you any type of protection. Uh, if there's arrears of child or spousal support, as we always say on this show here, that's not a debt you'd ever want to compromise anyway, and the government doesn't let you do that. Right. Um, so the Limitations Act doesn't apply to any support or maintenance obligations, um, but it does apply to things you know like credit cards, payday loans, basically every other type of consumer debt. Um, it's the case that if you're not able to pay the debt, if two years goes by from your last payment, written acknowledgement, um, or the date you incurred the debt, the creditor could never force you to pay that debt. So that could also include um, like a f- like furniture stores who mm-hmm. are giving you uh, a product and you've decided that you're going to pay them back over a period of time, all of those kinds of sort of like yeah. smaller, uh, not retailers, but smaller uh, uh, credit. Credit. It, it could, yeah. There's, there's yeah. not, you know, a size test on it, so it could be a very big debt. But I've also got to think of it. You know, it's a, if it's a very large debt, they're probably not going to let 24 months go by before they actually bring a court action for payment. Fair enough. Generally, on a smaller debt, you're right. So if you had financed something from from a retail store, and let's say they didn't take security on the assets, which they often don't, well, then it becomes a standard unsecured debt, like a credit card or anything else. If you're unable to pay on that debt, um, you know, for the 
two years, they can threaten you that they're going to you know, take you to court, come and seize assets and things like that. But as soon as it's more than two years from a last payment, they cannot bring a court action. If they did, they would lose in about 30 seconds of you showing up and saying the Limitation Act has passed, 24 months has elapsed since my last payment, you know, this should be thrown out and it would be. Okay. And uh, this is a bit of a repeat of what you've already said, but the two types of acknowledgements uh, that you don't want to make. So even if you've just like paid a dollar on mm-hmm. that debt, yeah, that still then re- that's resets the clock. Yeah. Any partial payment. So again, be careful of that because that's definitely a strategy I've seen collectors employ. Um, and you know, the other is a written confirmation. So even if it's over email, it's you saying, yeah, I agree that I owe this money. I'm aware of the liability. I agree that I owe this money that resets the clock back again and the two-year limitation period starts anew. Okay. So let's talk, can, there's an example here that you've given us to talk about. Let's let's use that one. So that's when waiting until the debts are statute barred, mm-hmm. solving a person's financial problems. Yeah. So the type of person this would apply to is not somebody that's, you know, in the prime of their, their career, you know, earning income, needs to be very concerned about, you know, perhaps credit or different things like that. Yeah. This applies to somebody who meets the, the definition of the term judgment proof. And what that means is essentially it's someone with nothing left to lose, to, to put kind of fine point on it, it means that even if they were taken to court, they don't have any assets, there's no real estate, there's no car, there's no savings, um, you know, it's, it's someone, they might have some furniture, some clothing, and that's about it. Um, and they've got no income that's easily seizable. If someone's, you know, working a good T4 job, they could have their wages taken. If someone is, you know, 70, 75 years old, is getting CPP, OAS, and that's about it, there's no court in this law that I'm aware of that's going to agree that a creditor can take, you know, 30 to 50% of that um, and leave the person destitute. So so in many cases, if somebody is judgment-proof, for example, they may they may want to file a bankruptcy just to make sure that it's dealt with it, but we'd often counsel them to say, you know what, if you were to send them a letter saying you don't consent to phone calls to stop the harassment and then just wait, wait the two years out, um, these debts will eventually become unenforceable against you. So it's not a comfortable way to go because you know there's people that are going to be contacting you saying, hey, you're not paying us and you should be. But after the period of two years goes by, that person would not have to look over their shoulder. They could not be collected from again. See, and that just means to me, that just says to me that that's that's the time to go and see you and say, okay, now what do I do? Exactly. What do I do? And I'm if, in this situation. And if someone sits down with me, and sometimes it's friends and family members that bring in, you know, sometimes aged relatives, and we sit down, I give them a copy, here's the letter you can send to your creditors that says you don't consent to phone calls, here's how we expect this to go. Oftentimes, they still end up wanting some formal assistance because there is the certainty of going through a proceeding, knowing a trustee is on your side, going to help you get through it. Um, but being aware of the statute of limitations, sometimes people say, well, that's all I needed to know. As long as I know I'm protected, I'm not going to make a formal filing. I'm just going to wait for the two years to elapse. Right. But the best, the, the the key is here, folks, is to sit down and talk to somebody who knows, like like a licensed insolvency trustee, and figure out the best course of action to take or, or not to take, yeah. uh, and just sit tight. Yeah, it's just one other option for folks to consider. Go check out their website. It's terrific, sans-trustee.com. If you've got more questions in your mind, or better yet, just give them a call, 1-800-661-3030. They've got 16 office and, offices in British Columbia. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. 
Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.